I've always kind of gone from a corporate environment to an academic environment to kind of fuel my curiosity and build my skills. And I'm just one of those people who always wants to do more and learn more and try more. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Making Ways. I'm your host, Rob Goodman, and you're listening to the podcast all about the unexpected paths to a creative career. We've got an incredible guest today. It's Ariana Orland. And Ariana has had this amazing career where she did not start out as a designer and she did not start out by studying design, but she kind of got into it and she followed this passion and this interest. She went back to school and she went on to work at some amazing tech companies. You might remember Friendster, Zynga, and she's working for Twitter now as a freelancer and consultant. And she has her own letterpress practice. And she's even starting a conference next year called Invisible. So it's a really great conversation with Ariana, and I'm so excited for you all to hear it. So let's start the show and get to our conversation. Hi, Ariana. Hi. Welcome to the show. Thank you. So glad to have you here. So you have had an incredible career working for some of the biggest tech companies. Um, Nowadays, you're helping startups in a variety of different creative roles. Tell me a little bit about what you're up to now and also what kind of roles you typically take on as a freelance operator these days. Yeah, so uh, these days I spend a lot of my time at Twitter. I consult in a group there uh, called The Studio, which functions like an internal marketing team, helping both uh, the business side and the consumer side of marketing at Twitter tell, tell their stories. And the work that I do there uh, is primarily on projects that have a user experience focus. So we recently launched uh, marketing.twitter.com, which is a CMS-powered um, responsive website uh, with in 10 languages uh, with authors all over the world that are sharing case studies and success stories and insights about um, how, how to use Twitter um, on behalf of businesses. And we recently launched uh, Twitter's blog, which at one point uh, prior to the redesign was something like 37 blogs. Wow. It's now four. Uh, Congratulations. (laughs) Thank you. That is a big accomplishment. It's a big accomplishment. And it kind of speaks to the complexity of or the kind of underlying complexity of some of these projects. Uh, But I also work with NerdWallet on uh, learning and development curriculum for their design team. Uh, and I just redesigned, uh, an app called do stuff, which is an event, uh, finding app. So to answer your question, I I guess I spend a lot of time working across a range of my skill set. where sometimes I'm in a leadership position and sometimes I'm in a roll up my sleeves and, you know, do the work position. How did you approach your education, especially early in your career? Did you kind of set out to acquire certain skill set or did you more take on and evolve your learning and your education in the roles you were attracted to early on in your career? Yeah. So I thought I was going to be an oceanographer <laughs> Okay. <laughs> yeah. and I told my family that and they said, what? <laughs> and so I figured I had to go back to the drawing board and pick something else. Um, and so then, <laughs> and so then I said, well, I'm going to be a photographer. And they said, what? you know, how, how on earth would you have a career 
um, in photography. And so I had to go back to the drawing board. And I ended up choosing humanities as a major. Um, and I actually uh, created my own major. So I was an American studies major uh, at UC Santa Cruz, but it allowed me to curate my own curriculum, which was largely around American popular culture and photography and kind of allowing me to be creative, but somehow backed by a a humanities degree that would guarantee me some kind of job. Um, and then I, you know, after school, I sold shoes, um, which again, wasn't really a career path. Um, and fortunately, I had a roommate who was temping at the time. And she was asked if she had any photography skills. And she said, no, but my roommate does. And so she asked if I was interested in being a slide librarian for an architecture firm. And I had kind of come to this place where I was thinking about quitting my shoe selling job. Um, and so I figured, why not do it? And once I got to the, to the architecture firm, I actually, I had my own office. There was a computer in the office. I didn't have my own computer at the time. And I was good with photography and I took quickly to learning how to use the computer. And that kind of led me to this path of marketing, communication design, and then later on design. Um, but I was very aware early on that I didn't have the foundational skills to be a graphic designer. Uh, and so I took those on outside. I took uh, classes at the community college um, and uh, kind of pursued it that way. And I've always kind of gone from a corporate environment to an academic environment to kind of fuel my curiosity and build my skills. And I'm just one of those people who always wants to do more and learn more and try more. Um, and I think oftentimes in a business environment, you know, you're relied on for doing one thing very specifically or maybe a sampling of things very specifically, um, but you don't oftentimes get the opportunity to, to grow your skill set. And it sounds like you were always drawn to these creative roles, like the story you just told where you brought these ideas to your family, well, minus the oceanographer. <laughs> it's a little more scientific, I guess. But at least the photography and things yeah. like that. It seems like yeah. you were drawn to more creative paths early on. But you felt, you know, either family or society or your own restrictions around, no, it has to be a career. It has to be something I can, you know, get in and, and move my way up. So I guess when did you realize look, this, this path keeps calling to me. I have to go investigate it. Was it a circumstance kind of situation? Or did you just realize, you know, put all that stuff away. Let me just, you know, pursue yeah. my passions. Yeah. So uh, I had worked at the architecture firm, as I mentioned, and I was kind of unhappy there. Uh, and I had worked uh, for quite a while on helping the chief information officer there digitize their slide library. And he took a liking to me, and he knew that that the role that I was in, which I think at the time was marketing coordinator, um, was really you know not not the right fit. Uh, and he agreed to set up informational interviews for me around San Francisco. And I went to a couple architecture firms, and he was also friends with uh, Clement Mock, who ran Studio Archetype at the time. And so I went to Studio Archetype under the construct of an informational interview. Uh, and I went there and I walked into this place and everybody's photos were on the wall and the receptionist was so nice. 
and their work was on shelves because at the time they made physical things too, like product packaging and and um, and whatnot. Uh, and I walked, and the, there were it was flooded with light. It was in Potrero Hill, and I walked in and I thought, oh my god, I hope they like me. And I went through this informational interview, and I left the interview, and I thought, those are my people. That's the feeling that I wanted to get when I walked into a company. That's the kind of work that I want to do. Those are are the kind of people that I want to be around. And I was like, you know, hoping that somehow I could turn this informational interview into a job. Uh, And so I wrote my heart out of this thank you note uh, and I sent it to them and, you know, I got a nice thank you back and I was still working at the architecture firm. And I think I got laid off like on a Wednesday from the architecture firm. Architecture is a really cyclical industry. Um, it ebbs and flows. I was low on the food chain and I got laid off. And, um, a few days later I got a note from studio archetype and they said, why don't you come back in? We have a role and we'd like to talk to you about it. So, you know, it was kind of accidental, um, and maybe more on an intuitive level. And I kind of needed to see it reflected back to me in this environment of studio archetype to realize like that that is the kind of place that I want to work and the kind of work that I want to do. And so how long did you stay at that agency? And then when did you start making your way into technology? Yeah. So studio archetype was a design agency in San Francisco founded by Clement Mock. And in many ways, uh, Clement is considered like the godfather of information design. Uh, and they were a boutique agency in San Francisco uh, in the 90s. So I worked at Studio Archetype. And one of the last projects that I worked on before the dot-com crash um, was Walmart.com. So that was their holiday 2000 website. Walmart had a uh, website at the time uh, that was created in Bentonville. They really didn't understand the e-commerce space. Many people didn't. Um, uh, and Studio Archetype uh, created their holiday 2000 website. Um, and that was one of the last projects I did before the dot-com crash. And I was laid off again, uh, from studio archetype, but many people who had worked, uh, on the Walmart project ended up going client side to walmart.com. Uh, and so I had a couple of colleagues over there and they called and said, you know, do you want to join us? Uh, so I ended up at walmart.com, which at the time was a startup. It was, uh, I think Walmart stores had a percentage interest, but it was a, it was a separate company. Oh, wow. Um, okay. Yeah. And then, uh, and then I was a consultant because I didn't want to commit to full time. This is a theme <laughs> in my life. Um, that was your first kind of, uh, <laughs> move towards like being a consultant, being freelance. Let me just try yeah, this let out. Me try and this see. out. Yeah. Do you think that had to do with like some of the layoffs earlier where you wanted control of the situation or was it that you wanted to be able to just jump, maybe start jumping from experience to experience? Uh, so if I'm being honest, I had some judgment for working for Walmart. Um, I wasn't super comfortable with it. I didn't really know what the role was going to be. Um, and I had just, you know, kind of been laid off and, you know, was was hedging my bets a little bit. Uh, and, uh, so I joined the team and it was really cool. We worked on an interactive touchscreen kiosk. So how long did you stay at walmart.com and was your next role Friendster? Yeah. So I was at walmart.com and again, I got to this place where I was unhappy. You know, I, um, 
I just felt pigeonholed in the in the work that I was doing. Um, it started to get repetitive. Um, I should say that after the touchscreen kiosk uh, work, um, I moved into uh, the marketing department there, um, which was also really exciting. We did a lot of store signage and um, uh, trade show, internal uh, trade show um, booths and spaces and um, worked to really like understand the relationship of the digital channel to the physical stores, uh, you know, and a lot of more traditional marketing. Uh, I think I had moved into the role of production designer there. So, uh, so at Studio Archetype, I was a production manager. Um, it was really important to me to kind of go beyond production and more into the design side of things. And, and that was a slow path for me. Like I said, I, I sought classes outside of, uh, work and, um, I worked really hard to take any opportunity that I could, uh, to touch the design work. So whether it was doing production on someone else's files or whether it was doing a credit card stuffer for Walmart, I didn't care because I was so, I, I looked at it as a privilege um, and I had made that known and I had a boss who, who um, had a relationship with the interactive telecommunications program uh, in New York. Um, she had come from New York. Uh, she was also familiar with Ivrea, which was an interaction design institute experiment in Italy. Hmm. Um, and we got to talking and, you know, I said to her one day, I said, you know, do you think that I should go to grad school? Um, and she said, I think that you should apply to graduate schools and then you'll have a decision to make. <laughs> you know, it's not about whether you should or shouldn't or the anticipation of the, the, the question. It's about manifesting that. Right. You know, and that's the advice I've always gotten, which was good. Is like, well, get the job and then you can make the decision. You have no decision to make right. right now. That's right. So no point in wasting cycles on it. That's right. And she was the first person to say that to me and it was really well, well said and well-timed. Uh, so I did, I, I started applying to graduate schools and I, um, applied to NYU, the interactive telecommunications program. And I found out that I had, uh, gotten early admission. Wow. So, uh, I had a friend at the time who, uh, was working at Friendster. Um, I actually had a lot of friends who had been part of the dot-com crash, um, who were kind of, you know, working in different places, um, because of the crash, everybody got distributed to these different companies. Um, and I told them that I was going to go to school. Um, and, you know, friends said, well, why don't you come help me, you know, here before you leave for the summer? Um, and one of those places was Friendster. My, my good friend, Shireen, who I worked with at walmart.com, had gone on to Friendster. Uh, and she invited me to, to come work with her there. Uh, and so I did. And Friendster tried to convince me to stay and not go to graduate school. So I had this crazy moment of like, you know, working at one of the, the like craziest stories of the beginning of kind of, you know, the internet, social media, kind of social networking space um, and going to graduate school, which was uh, something that, that I really felt that I needed um, personally. And kind of this, you know, that was one of the big choices that I had to make in my life. That's a tough decision because it was a rocket ship at the time. It was a rocket ship at the time, but I had also um, this kind of other intuitive side of myself, which was like, I want to be more 
self-actualize more. I want to be a better designer. I want to have bigger ideas. I want to think about things beyond mouse and keyboard. Um, I want to grow myself professionally and intellectually. Um, so I had that and I had this kind of like stay, buckle your seatbelt and like be a part of this. And I really didn't know what to do. Um, and I asked a couple of the smartest people that I knew, um, in my life, you know, what they thought. Um, and you know, a lot of them didn't know either. Um, but I think that it was the intuitive side of myself that, that just led me to go to school. I just knew that I needed to do that. And I wasn't attracted to the chaos and the craziness. It was exciting to be there, but it wasn't like that studio archetype feeling of like, these are my people. This is a place that is about the practice of design and the ideas. It felt like this is a place that's about like this wild ride. And like, if you're into that, then that would be exciting, but it didn't culturally, I, I wasn't comfortable there to be honest. So you were happy at the time with your decision and looking back, you feel good about it <laughs> looking back I feel good about it um, <laughs> given, given what ultimately uh, looking, happened looking back I feel good about it um and yes I'm really happy with my decision going to graduate school was one of the best things that I ever did um it was wonderful to have a, a time where my ideas could be my own um it was wonderful to to be in an environment that um that let me explore my creativity that and the relationship of that to technology um, that wasn't about budgets and timelines and ROIs and kind of fitting into um, uh, design as a service on behalf of business. It was about like, how, how do you think, what do you want to make and what are the possibilities of that? And so what did you do after you finished school and with all these kind of newfound skills? Yeah. Where did you go forward from there? Yeah. So so while I was in school in the summers, I was still uh, consulting and freelancing. So I worked uh, for friends at EA and PayPal and a lot of um, companies here uh, in San Francisco, even though I was in New York. Uh, and that was really great. Uh, to be able to kind of balance school uh, out with kind of continuing in, in my professional practice. Yeah, that's so great. That must have been a ton of work. Yeah, but you know, it was really good. <laughs> Again, I, I love making things and I, I really do view the work as kind of a privilege. It's a privilege to be able to work on these things, to touch these things, to create experiences for people, um, you know, through the craft and practice of design. It's, it's like, I would do that 24 seven if I could. So while I was in school, I was, um, uh, still freelancing. And then after school, um, again, I, I started freelancing in New York. Um, I think because I was kind of part of the dot-com crash initially, um, you know, the boom and then the crash and kind of the, the, um, rise again of 2.0. Um, I had this new, this professional nucleus that, um, that then uh, got distributed to lots of other companies and I had those relationships um, you know and as as my friends and colleagues went on in in their careers and their relationships began to grow um, it just put me in a really good place uh, um, where I had colleagues and and people who who needed help so you didn't have to pause work during school you kept going and then did you take on a full-time role after school or did you yeah. just keep consulting? I kept consulting. Uh, I was lucky enough to work for a man named Hillman Curtis who was very big uh, 
uh, in the Flash uh, community early on. Um, he was on the lecture circuit and a very well-known uh, designer. Uh, and so he had um, he wanted to kind of transition more into film, uh, and he needed someone to uh, continue running his web practice. So I worked for him uh, for quite a while, um, and I consulted in a lot of other companies at the time too. So yeah, it was a lot of consulting. It's kind of a blur. <laughs> and when did you make your way to Zynga? Cause I know yeah. that was a, that yeah. was a big role, big opportunity again. Yeah. So, um, so for Zynga, um, I began working there as a full-time employee in 2010. Uh, and I was, they were one of the clients, uh, that I consulted for, for probably like a year, maybe even two years before that. Uh, and he said, look, you know, I have this project and I think you would be really great for it. I want you to talk to this woman named Rhiannon. Uh, and so I called her up and she said, she said, yeah, you know, we're, we're actually building a social network for games. Um, Your first full-time job in many years, <laughs> In right? many years. Yeah. In many years. It. Yeah. I went for it. So we moved out here and I worked on that project for, um, about a year and a half, maybe two years. Um, I was design director on that project and the project was interesting and, you know, kind of getting to see what was going on behind the scenes at Zynga was interesting. The scale was interesting, but the project suffered because, um, it was really leverage, uh, in the relationship between Facebook and Zynga and many of the decisions, like what we were working on were beholden to the state of that relationship. And so there was a lot of, we're using, um, uh, Facebook Connect, we're not using Facebook Connect. And that decision has huge impact in uh, how the product experience comes together. And so the kind of back and forth of that just, it was, it was, I went back and forth too many times on the ride. <laughs> so I wanted to get off. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, and I ended up moving over into the marketing team there, uh, which uh, was really exciting. You know, Zynga, as we've said, was kind of a rocket ship too. And there were a lot of amazing partnerships that were going on um, and a lot of uh, just really interesting opportunities uh, from a marketing and branding perspective um, that allowed me to kind of go back to this other side of my skill set. So I tend to work across marketing executions as well as product uh, executions. And so um, you know, I had been deep in kind of Zynga product thinking for, you know, half of my tenure there um, and then moved into the marketing side of the business, which let me uh, kind of spread those those wings on the marketing and branding side. Having worked at some of these startups, what kind of lessons do you feel like you bring to projects now with startups you're working with or even Twitter yeah. and other places? Like what have you learned by seeing some of the chaos that you kind of that kind of informs the work you do with them now. Yeah. So early on in my career, I, I sort of wanted to be an individual practitioner and kind of stay within the practice of design um, because the business environment made me uncomfortable. Um, but then I realized that what designers work on is defined by a group of people, oftentimes where there's no design representation. So um, it, it made me kind of, once I had that realization, want to participate more in the management side of, um, that decision-making. 
So, you know, I've learned that designers need to participate in the business side of that relationship. They need to be in the rooms where where those decisions are being made uh, in order to kind of shepherd the practice, create the right um, uh, deliverables and timelines, um, and to really um, advocate for how design can best uh, serve those business needs. Um, so, you know, I've learned that design needs to be in the room where the decisions get made. Um, I've learned that good design isn't enough. Um, that design needs constant advocacy. It needs constant, um, I don't want to say selling, but I do think it needs, um, it needs languaging. So, you know, in a business environment for people who are not design practitioners, the way that they talk about the work, uh, is, is defined by the limits of their ability to express that, you know? And I think if you have a designer in the room or someone who, who can create more access um, in the conversation and uh, more perception uh, around what it is that the group is seeing, that's really valuable. And it's so wonderful to hear you talk in that way because obviously you've been doing it for years now, but it sounds like that kind of understanding is what you were yearning for when you made that big decision to go to grad school and understand that big picture. Now you've gotten to experience it in actual roles and live through it, but now that's the space that you operate in. So it's it's really nice to look at that trajectory. Yeah. I used to be embarrassed that I had worked a lot of places and that I wasn't a full-time employee, um, but over the years... I have had the privilege of watching the design process unfold hundreds and hundreds of times. I've had the privilege of watching it succeed and fail. I've had the privilege of seeing all the tools and techniques um, that people have, you know, bring to bear all of the kind of um, challenges and loopholes and traditional places where it falls down. Um, and so, you know, I really view my more diverse experience uh, as a huge asset, just a huge asset. And you've talked about how much you love being a student and learning, but I know teaching has been a big part of your career as well. Tell me about your experiences teaching and what you've learned and kind of what's been maybe the hardest part of teaching for you and where you've taught. Yeah. So I've taught at uh, UC Berkeley Extension, uh, CCA in Parsons. And I, I love teaching. And I think, you know, in terms of like what, what I found surprising about it, maybe how much I loved it, you know, um, when I started talking about uh, the work and, and the assignments, how much I had to say, it kind of poured out of me and I, and I was surprised by that. Um, and how invested I was, you know, and, and how proud uh, I am of my students. Um, when I went to NYU uh, and I graduated, uh, the dean of the Tisch School, she reads this uh, Apollinaire quote. Um, and I decided, well, at the end of my class, I'm going to read this quote. Um, and I did. This was my first class. And I started crying. Wow. <laughs> I was so proud of my students and I was so proud of myself. Um, and I, I have the quote um, do you want me to read it? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> uh, it says, come to the edge. He said, we can't, we're afraid. They responded, come to the edge. He said, we can't, we will fall. They responded, come to the edge. He said, and so they came. 
and he pushed them and they flew. That's awesome. <laughs> you know, and I, I read it to my class. Like, it gets me emotional even now. Um, it's such a beautiful quote, and I think it's such a, um, a reminder to everyone, you know, that, that, like, it just, it takes one person, um, you know, to say you can do it, to kind of um, give space and light to whatever that intuition that you have about yourself that maybe you kind of can't get across the finish line. Well, I think your story is incredibly inspiring. And now that you are kind of thriving as this freelance consultant, you've been doing this for years. Now you want to move into the space of actually hosting a big discussion around design with Invisible, yep. which is a conference that you're going to be launching next year. Mm -hmm. So tell me about that. And what, what made you want to do this and kind of add your voice in the kind of conference space and design discussion at large? Yeah, so Invisible Talks is a conference about the creative process. And, you know, I realized that's what I've been doing <laughs> for the last 20 years. In meetings, in classrooms, in coffee yes, chats. Yes, I have been in the throes. I have been enchanted. I have been in a fever dream of the creative process you know, um, with different groups and faces and names and companies um, and people and, you know, my own individual pursuits uh, within that. But, like, that's the space that I feel most alive in. Um, and I've lived in San Francisco off and on for many years, but mostly on. Uh, I was in New York for six years, but I think I've been here maybe 15 or something like that. And, um, you know, I feel like San Francisco is kind of unique uh, in that um, it can be a very insular, um, you know, it can be a little balkanized. Um, and I just have this vision or desire slash um, impulse to want to bring the creative community together. I don't feel like we're together enough. I don't feel like there's um, that it's big enough. I don't feel like it might be big enough, but I don't feel that we can all feel into our relationships with each other enough. Um, you know, the city is largely dominated by tech um, and design and creativity. It needs a voice. It needs uh, it needs its own uh, kind of um, locking of arms. Um, and it and the world is a better place when people get together and talk about ideas. So, you know, for Invisible, it's, I, I think it's been 20 years in the making in certain ways. Ariana, thank you so much for joining the show. I really, I really love the conversation and I think listeners are going to get so much from your journey. Oh, thank you so much. I, I did too. And I really hope so too. Okay. That was the conversation with Ariana Orland. I'm so glad you guys listened and I hope you learned as much through our conversation as I did. Ariana, thank you so much for joining the show and being so open and honest and giving with your story. Thanks to our listeners out there. If you are loving what you're hearing on Making Ways, please head on over to iTunes and write a review. It's a really powerful way for more people to get turned on to the show. Thanks to our partner, General Assembly. If you go to ga.co and use the offer code MAKINGWAYS at checkout, you'll get 15% off any class or workshop. So check them out. 
And if you're interested in going beyond the episodes of Making Ways, check out makingways.co. I post show notes and original illustrations and articles there. And you can also follow us on Twitter at making underscore ways or on Instagram at making.ways. Making Ways is engineered by Jim Heffernan at TTO Productions. Our intro music is by The Sandworms, and Jim Heffernan has some music in the mix too. You can learn more about Ariana at arianaorland.com, and you can check out Jim's work at ttoproductions.com. Thanks so much for listening, and have a great week.